0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear I Live on Your Visits by Dorothy Parker, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 1955.
1: For the past week, up at his school, he had hoped, and coming down in the train, he had hoped so hard that it became prayer that his mother would not be what he thought of only as like that.
0: The story was chosen by Andrew Sean Greer, who's the author of six books of fiction and received the Pulitzer Prize in 2018 for his novel Less. Hi Andy.
1: Hi there.
0: <laughs> so tell me why Dorothy Parker? What does what does she mean to you as a as a reader and as a writer?
1: I got a copy of the Portable Dorothy Parker when I was 17 friend gave it to me and it has been my Bible ever since. (laughs) I never read anything so wicked and funny before.
0: What prompted the friend to give you that?
1: I think she was shocked that I'd never heard of Dorothy Parker.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There probably aren't that many 17 year olds these days who have.
1: Well, she'd had a different kind of boarding school life where they passed that kind of thing around.
0: Mm -hmm. And what was it at, at that age that really hit you about her work?
1: She wrote these theater reviews, um, I think, for The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. Um, She was standing in for someone, and she would always choose a play that she knew she would hate so that she could write the most scathing, (laughs) funny thing about it. And they're they're just so cruel and and funny. And when you're a teenager, you just think that's the most amazing thing. And she's so erudite and well-spoken.
0: Yeah. And were you at that point in your life thinking of yourself as a potential future writer?
1: I Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I'll i never be a Dorothy Parker, but <laughs> it was a good model of someone. She did things, you know, she wrote poetry and little reviews. She's not known, I think, as writing anything in a long form. So that was very inspiring, too, that you could be funny in a short way.
0: Mm-hmm. And funny was the goal?
1: Well, I tried it. I wasn't so good at it. <laughs> but it was good. I wrote plays, too. And I would, imitate, I would have always have a sort of Dorothy Parker-esque character, you know, saying terrible things
0: (laughs) well this story um i live on your visits it came sort of late in parker's career she would have been i think 61 when it came out and it was one of her last stories in the new yorker you know most of her stories in the magazine were published uh 20 or 30 years earlier um do you think that it's it it fits in the body of her work
1: I do I was looking over my portable Dorothy Parker <coughs>
0: mm-hmm. the
1: other day the same copy the same copy with my <laughs> with my friend's inscription at the front well worn it's so mean <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sorry but it's a, it's such a mean story um but the humor what's funny is there's no one witty in it you know there's not a um there's Dorothy Parker her, her kind of character is not in it and that's mostly what shows up in in things but it fits with other stories that are sort of about suffering wives um the sort of the subtle like madness of middle class like trying to climb up in some way and that's what she's she's ridiculing here but I've never seen this character before this sort of Agnes Moorhead Hermione Gingold (laughs)
0: um and and you know obviously the the subject matter in the story isn't inherently funny. It's actually quite, well, not tragic, but depressing. Yeah. Is, do, you, do you feel that that choice is a, is a usual one for her?
1: Well, we, we know her as a, as a depressive, right? <laughs> and dipsomaniac. Yeah. Um, and when you read her stories, you see that sadness. It really comes mm-hmm. out in her stories. There's, it's a lot of loneliness the impossibility of connection. There's. I'm trying to think of another one that's a, a sort of a companion to this about a soldier coming home on furlough and his wife just can't can't keep still long enough to enjoy it. She sort of ruins it for both mm-hmm. of them. Whereas you know when when she's being witty, that doesn't come out. Although you read her poetry and it all it's all about you know no one ever gave me one perfect rose kind of thing.
0: <laughs> okay, well we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Andrew Sean Greer reading I Live on Your Visits by Dorothy Parker.
1: I Live on Your Visits The boy came into the hotel room and immediately it seemed even smaller. Hey, it's cool in here, he said. This was not meant as a comment on the temperature. Cool for reasons possibly known in some department of heaven, was a term then in use among many of those of his age to express approbation. It was indeed cool in the room after the hard gray rain in the streets. It was warm, and it was so bright. The many-wanted electric bulbs his mother insisted upon were undimmed by the thin, frilled shades she had set on the hotel lamps, and there were shiny things everywhere. Sheets of mirror along the walls, a square of mirror backing the mirror-plated knob on the door that led to the bedroom, cigarette boxes made of tiny bits of mirror and match boxes slipped into little mirror jackets placed all about, and on consoles and desk and table, photographs of himself at two and a half and five and seven and nine, framed in broad mirror bands. Whenever his mother settled in a new domicile, and she removed often— Those photographs were the first things out of the luggage. The boy hated them. He had had to pass his fifteenth birthday before his body had cut up with his head. There was that head and those presentiments of his former selves, that pale enormous blob. Once he had asked his mother to put the pictures somewhere else, preferably some small dark place that could be locked. But he had had the bad fortune to make his request on one of the occasions when she was given to weeping suddenly and long so the photographs stood out on parade, with their frames twinkling away. There were twinklings, too, from the silver top of the fat crystal cocktail shaker, but the liquid low within the crystal was pale and dull. There was no shine either to the glass his mother held. It was cloudy from the clutch of her hand, and on the inside there were oily dribbles of what it had contained. His mother shut the door by which she had admitted him, and followed him into the room. She looked at him with her head tilted to the side. Well, aren't you going to kiss me, she said in a charming, wheedling voice, the voice of a little, little girl. Aren't you, you beautiful, big ox, you? Sure, he said. He bent down toward her, but she stepped suddenly away. A sharp change came over her. She drew herself tall, with her shoulders back and her head flung high. Her upper lip lifted over her teeth, and her gaze came cold beneath lowered lids. "'so does one who has refused the white handkerchief "'regard the firing squad. "'Of course,' she said in a deep, iced voice "'that gave each word its full due, "'if you do not wish to kiss me, "'let it be recognized that there is no need for you to do so. "'I had not meant to overstep. "'I apologize. "'Je vous demande pardon. "'I had no desire to force you. "'I have never forced you. "'There is none to say I have.' "'Ah, Mom,' he said. He went to her, bent again, and this time kissed her cheek. There was no change in her, save in the slow, somehow offended lifting of her eyelids. The brows arched as if they drew the lids up with them. "'Thank you,' she said. "'That was gracious of you. "'I value graciousness. "'I rank it high. "'Mille grazie." "'Ah, Mom,' he said." For the past week up at his school he had hoped, and coming down in the train he had hoped so hard that it became prayer that his mother would not be what he thought of only as like that. His prayer had gone unanswered. He knew by the two voices, by the head first tilted then held high, by the eyelids lowered in disdain then raised in outrage, by the little lisped words and then the elegant enunciation and the lofty diction. He knew. He stood there and said, "'Ah, Mom!' "'Perhaps,' she said, "'you will award yourself the privilege "'of meeting a friend of mine. "'She is a true friend. "'I am proud that I may say it.' "'There was someone else in the room. "'It was preposterous that he had not seen her, "'for she was so big. "'Perhaps his eyes had been dazzled "'after the dim-lit hotel corridor. "'Perhaps his attention had been all for his mother. "'At any rate, there she sat, "'the true friend,' on the sofa covered with embossed cotton fabric of the sickened green that is peculiar to hotel upholsteries. There she sat at one end of the sofa, and it seemed as if the other end must fly up into the air. "'I can give you but little,' his mother said, "'yet life is still kind enough to let me give you something you will always remember. "'Through me you will meet a human being.' "'Yes, oh, yes.' The voices, the stances, the eyelids, those were the signs, but when his mother divided the race into people and human beings, that was the certainty. He followed her the little way across the room, trying not to tread on the train of her velvet tea gown that slid along the floor after her and slapped at the heels of her gilt slippers. Fog seemed to rise from his raincoat and his shoes cheaped. He turned out to avoid the coffee table in front of the sofa "'came in again too sharply and bumped it. "'Madame Mara,' his mother said, "'may I present my son?' "'Christ, he's a big bastard, isn't he?' the true friend said. "'She was a fine one to talk about anybody's being big. "'Had she risen, she would have stood shoulder against shoulder with him "'and she must have outweighed him by sixty pounds.' She was dressed in quantities of tweed-like stuff ornamented surprisingly with black sequins set on in patterns of little bunches of grapes. On her massive wrists were bands and chains of dull silver from some of which hung amulets of discolored ivory like rotted fangs. Over her head and neck was a sort of call of criss-cross mauve veiling splattered with fuzzy black balls. The call caused her no inconvenience. Puffs of smoke issued sporadically from behind it, and though the veiling was crisp elsewhere, around the mouth it was of a marshy texture, where drink had passed through it. His mother became the little girl again. Isn't he wonderful, she said. This is my baby. This is Chrissy Wiss. What is his name? The true friend said. Why, Christopher, of course, his mother said. Christopher, of course. Had he been born earlier, it would have been Peter, earlier again, Michael. He had been not much too late for Jonathan. In the lower forms of his school, there were various Nicholases, several Robins, and here and there a Jeremy coming up. But the members of his own class were in the main Christopher's. Christopher, the true friend said. Well, that's not too bad. Of course, the downward stroke of the P is bound to give him trouble, and I'm never really happy about an R and an I together. But it's not too bad. Not two. When's your birthday? she asked the boy. The 15th of August, he said. His mother was no longer the little girl. The heat, she said. The cruel August heat and the stitches. Oh, God, the stitches. So he's a Leo, the true friend said. Awfully big for a Leo. You want to be pretty careful, young man, from October 22nd to November 13th. Keep away from anything electrical. I will, the boy said. Thank you, he added. Let me see your hand, the true friend said. The boy gave her his hand. Mm, she said, scanning the palm.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, well, that can't be helped. Well, you'll have pretty good health if you just watch that chest of yours. There's a long sickness in your 20s and a bad accident sometime around 45, but that's about all. There's going to be an unhappy love affair, but you'll get over it. You'll marry and... I can't see if there's two or three children. Probably two, and one born dead or something like that. I don't see much money any time. Well, you watch your chest. She gave him back his hand. Thank you, he said. The little girl came back to his mother. Isn't he going to be famous? She said. The true friend shrugged. It's not in his hand, she said. I always thought he'd write, his mother said. When he was so small, you could hardly see him. He used to write little verses. Chrissy, what was the one about the bumpy bunny? Oh, mother, he said, I don't remember. Oh, you do so, too, she said. You're just being modest. It was all about how the bunny went bumbity bumbity all day long. Of course you remember. Well, you don't seem to write verses anymore. At least none you show to me. And your letters, they're like telegrams when you write it all, that is. Oh, Mara, why do they have to grow up? And now he's going to be married and have all those children. too. anyway, the true friend said. I'm not too happy about that third one. I suppose I'll never see him then, his mother said. A lonely old woman, sick and trembling, and no one to take care of me. She picked up the true friend's empty glass from the coffee table, filled it and her own from the cocktail shaker, and returned the friend's. She sat down near the sofa. Well, sit down, Chrissy, she said, and why don't you take off your coat? Why, I don't think I'd better, Mom, he said. You see, he wants to keep his wet coat on, the true friend said. He likes to smell like low tide. Well, you see, the boy said, I can stay just a minute. You see, the train was late and everything, and I told Dad I'd be sure to be there early. Oh, his mother said. The little girl ran off abruptly. The eyelids came into play. It's because the train was late, he said. If it had been on time, I could have stayed a while, but it had to go and be late, and they're having dinner awfully early tonight. I see, his mother said. I see. I had thought that you would have dinner with me, with your mother, her only son, but no, that is not to be. I have only an egg, but I would have shared it with you so gladly, so happily. But you are wise, of course. You must think first of your own comfort. Go and fill your stomach with your father. Go eat stalled ox with him. Mother, don't you see, he said, we have to have dinner early because we have to go to bed early. We've got to get up at daybreak because we're driving to the country. You know, I wrote you. Driving, she said. Your father has a new car, I presume. It's the same old heap, he said. He said. Nearly eight years old? Really? she said. Naturally the buses in which I am obliged to ride are all this year's models. Oh, Mom, he said. Is your father well? she said. He's fine, he said. Why not? she said. What is there could pierce that heart? And how is Mrs. Tennant, as I suppose she calls herself? Let's not do this again, will you, Mom? he said. She's Mrs. Tennant. You know that. She and Dad have been married for six years. To me, she said, there is only one woman who may rightfully wear a man's name, the one whose son he has sired. But that is only my humble opinion. Who is to listen to it? You get along all right with your stepmother, the true friend said. As always, it took him a moment before he could connect the term. It seemed to have nothing to do with Whitey, with her gay little monkey's face and her flying straw-colored hair. A laugh fell from his mother's lips, hard. Like a pellet of ice. Such women are sly, she said. They have ways. Well, born on a cusp, the true friend said, you've got to keep considering that. His mother turned to the boy. I am going to do something that you will agree in any honesty that I have never done before, she said. I am going to ask a favor of you. I am going to ask you to take off your coat and sit down so that for just a few poor minutes it will seem as if you were not going to leave me. Will you let me have that illusion? Do not do it out of affection or gratitude or consideration, just in simple pity. Yes, sit down for God's sake, the true friend said. You make people nervous. All right, sure, the boy said. He took off his raincoat, hung it over his arm, and sat on a small straight chair. He's the biggest damn thing I ever saw, the true friend said. Thank you, his mother said. If you think I ask too much, I plead guilty. "'Mea culpa. Well, now that we are cosy, let us talk, shall we? I see so little of you. I know so little about you. Tell me some things. Tell me what there is about this Mrs. Tennant that causes you to rank her so high above me. Is she more beautiful than I am?' "'Mom, please,' he said. "'You know Whitey isn't beautiful. She's just sort of funny-looking. Nice funny.' "'Nice funny,' she said. "'Oh, I'm afraid I could never compete with that.' Well, looks aren't everything, I suppose. Tell me, do you consider her a human being? Mother, I don't know, he said. I can't do that kind of talk. Let it pass, she said. Let it be forgotten. Is your father's country place attractive at this time of year? It isn't a place, he said. You know, it's just a big sort of shack. There isn't even any heat, just fireplaces. Ironic, she said. Bitterly, cruelly ironic. I, who so love an open fire, I, who could sit all day looking into its leaping golds and purples and dreaming happy dreams, and I haven't even a gas log. Well, and who is going to this shack to share the lovely glowing fires? Just Dad and Whitey and me, he said. Oh, and the other Whitey, of course. His mother looked at the true friend. Is it growing dark in here, she said or is it just that I think I'm going to faint? She looked again at the boy. The other Whitey? It's a little dog, he said. Not any particular kind. It's a nice little dog. Whitey saw it out in the street when it was snowing, and it followed her home, and so they kept it. And whenever Dad, whenever anybody called Whitey, the dog would come too. So Dad said, well, if he thought that was his name, then that was going to be his name. So that was why. I am afraid, his mother said that your father is not aging with dignity. To me, whimsy after forty-five is a matter of nausea. It's an awfully nice little dog, he said. The management does not allow dogs here, she said. I suppose that will be held against me. Mara, this drink, it is as weak as the beating of my heart. Why doesn't he make us some fresh ones, the true friend said. I'm sorry, the boy said. I don't know how to make cocktails. "'What do they teach you, anyway, in that fancy school of yours?' the true friend said. His mother tilted her head at the boy. Chrissy, she said, "'want to be a big, brave man? "'Take the bowl and get some nice, cold ice out of the kitchen.' He took the ice bowl, went into the minuscule kitchen, and took a tray of ice cubes from the tiny refrigerator. When he replaced the tray, he could hardly close the refrigerator door the shelves were so crowded.' There were a cardboard box of eggs, a packet of butter, a cluster of glossy French rolls, three artichokes, two avocados, a plate of tomatoes, a bowl of shelled peas, a grapefruit, a tin of vegetable juices, a glass of red caviar, a cream cheese, an assortment of sliced Italian sausages, and a plump little roasted Cornish rock hen. When he returned, his mother was busied with bottles and shaker. He set the bowl of cubes beside them. Look, Mom, he said, honestly, I've got to... His mother looked at him, and her lip trembled. Just two more minutes, she whispered. Please, oh, please. He went and sat again. She made the drinks, gave one to the true friend, and kept one. She sank into her chair. Her head drooped, and her body looked as boneless as a skein of yarn. Don't you want a drink, the true friend said. No, thanks, the boy said might do you good, the true friend said, might stunt your growth. How long are you going to stay up in this country where you're going? Oh, just over tomorrow night, he said. I have to be back at school Sunday evening. His mother stiffened and straightened. Her former coldnesses were as tropical heat to that which took her now. Do I understand you to say that you will not be coming in to see me again, she said. Do I understand you aright? "'I can't, Mom,' he said. "'I won't have a chance. "'We've got to drive back, and then I have to get the train.' "'I quite comprehend,' she said. "'I had thought, in my tenderness, "'I would see you again before you returned to your school. "'I had thought, of course, "'that if you must rush away like a mad thing today, "'then I would see you again to make up for it. "'Disappointments! "'I thought I had had them all. "'I thought life could bring forth no new ones, "'but this, this.' that you will not take a little bit of your time from your relatives, who have so much of it, to give to me, your mother. How it must please them that you do not want to see me. How they must laugh together. What a triumph. How they must howl in merriment. Mother, don't say things like that, he said. You shouldn't, even when you're pleased, she said. The subject is closed. I will say no more about your father, poor, weak man, and that woman with the dog's name. But you, you, have you no heart, no bowels, no natural instincts? No, you have not. I must face the fact, here in the presence of my friend, I must say what I had thought never, never to say. My son is not a human being. The true friend shook her call and sighed. The boy sat still. Your father, his mother said. Does he still see his old friends? Our old friends? Why, I don't know, Mom, he said. Yes, they see a lot of people, I guess. There's almost always somebody there. But they're alone a lot of the time. They like it that way. How fortunate, she said. They like being alone. Smug, content, no need. Yes, and the old friends. They do not see me. They are all in twos. They have lives. They know what they are going to be doing six months from now. Why should they see me? Why should they have memories? Kindnesses? Probably most of them Pisces, the true friend said. Well, you must go, the boy's mother said. It is late. Late. When is it ever late for me when my son is with me? But you have told me. I know. I understand, and so I bow my head. Go, Christopher, go. Terribly sorry, Mom, the boy said, but I told you how it is. He rose and put on his coat. Christ, he gets bigger and bigger, the true friend said. This time the eyelids of the boy's mother were lowered at her friend. I have always admired tall men, she said. She turned again to the boy. You must go, she said. It is so written but take happiness with you. Take sweet memories of our little time together. See, I shall show you that I bear no vengefulness. I shall show you that I wish only well to those who have wrought but evil to me. I shall give you a present to take to one of them. She rose, moved about the room, touched boxes and tables fruitlessly. Then she went to the desk, moved papers and inkstands, and brought forth a small square box, on top of which was a little plaster poodle sitting on its hind legs, its front paws curved endearingly, begging. "'This is a souvenir of happier times,' she said. "'But I need no reminders. Take this dear happy thing to one you love. See, see what it is.' She touched a spring at the back of the box, and the Marseillaise tinkled forth hesitantly. "'My little music-box,' she said, "'that moonlit night.' The ship so brilliant, the ocean so still and beckoning. Hey, that's cool, Mom, he said. Thanks ever so much. Why do you love it? She loves things like that. Things like that, she said. There are no other things like that when one gives from one's heart. She stopped and seemed to ponder. Whitey will love it, she said. Are you telling me that you propose giving it to that so-called Mrs. Tennant? She touched the box. The tinkling ceased. I thought you said, the boy said. She shook her head at him slowly. Curious, she said. Extraordinary. That my son should have so little perception. This gift from my poor little store is not for her. It is for the little dog. The little dog that I may not have. My thanks, Mom, he said. Thanks. So go, she said. I would not hold you. Take with you my wishes for your joy among your loved ones. And when you can, when they will release you for a little while, come to me again. I wait for you. I light a lamp for you. My son, my only child, there are but desert sands for me between your comings. I live on your visits. Chris, I live
0: on your visits. That was Andrew Sean Greer, reading I Live on Your Visits by Dorothy Parker. The story was published in The New Yorker in January of 1955 and was included in Parker's Complete Stories, published in 1995 and reissued by Penguin Classics in 2002. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine, You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead.
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was gonna go for it, no matter
0: what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Andy, this this mother... Awful mother is living in a residence hotel. She moves a lot. She drinks too much. She's full of anger about a divorce that happened years ago. She's erratic in conversation. What what has happened to her? Is this alcoholism? Would we have a, a different diagnostic term for it now?
1: Well, it's. I mean, he almost straight out says, you know, don't act this way while you're drunk. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, we look at it and we can kind of read through the lines that she's always been a terrible drunk and, and overly dramatic, and but she also it comes across as a, a failed dreams some way.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: to me, I'm like, oh, she must have been a exciting, dramatic actress kind of persona in her youth. I'm just starting to make up the rest of the story. <laughs> when I do that, you know, she's wearing this tea gown. It's we're assuming it's 1955, so you know she's not exactly Charlotte Hayes, you yeah. know, who's yeah. her contemporary of um, sort of um, sort of blousy middle age. There's some lost hope there, and there's all this strange like mirrors everywhere. Yeah. So there's there's a kind of Miss Havisham quality or something, but
0: there's those, those many watted electric bulbs and and all these shiny things in the mirrors. Now, the mirrors are going to signal egotism or self-centeredness, but it's almost like a carnival tent, you know, with this with this medium psychic <laughs> sitting in the middle of it in her veils. It um, feels like there's something circus-like about the scene,
1: and you can you can see. I mean, I'm imagining Dorothy Parker having a great time describing that room which is the first thing we get and <laughs> such a good time describing that friend because we never get the son or the mother described
0: you know no. in any
1: way but that friend gets a full paragraph and a little bit more she's just enjoying that the the, the veil with the weird little balls on it and the she's drinking through it oh, it's just one of my favorite parts
0: He <laughs> <laughs> said Earlier that uh, there's no sort of witty character in the story, and and there's an interesting history to it. Um, oh, uh, according to Marion Mead, who wrote a biography of Dorothy Parker, apparently the first draft of the story had a character whom William Maxwell, who was uh, Parker's editor, described as a chatterbox homosexual queen well along in years and terribly amusing
1: huh. Oh. <laughs> I can't believe it.
0: <laughs> but um, Maxwell's superiors, which I, I assume would have been William Shawn, the editor then, wouldn't publish the story unless this, this offensive homosexual was removed. So Parker took the character out. I want um, to
1: read that version though.
0: <laughs> I don't know if that version exists anywhere. You know, that's the, the sad part. Um, and I, I'm not sure if, if Madame Mara is the is a sort of transformation of that character, or if they were both there originally. But it does make you wonder what happened, to, you know, this terribly amusing figure in the middle of the story and how how he was integrated.
1: That's, I mean, I think to her it would have made it more grotesque, right? Mm-hmm. That there's these sort of characters who would have um, been charming in their youth are sort of monsters, in their, I don't know how old they are all but but it just seems like they've got they've gone to seed and are still holding on to these fantasies. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd love to see that. I'm sure it'd be horrible and would break my heart about Dorothy Parker, but I'm sure she knew her share of witty homosexuals too.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds as though he was maybe the most sympathetic character in the story. who knows oh. um. So Maybe co-
1: that's why I'm drawn to it, because I'm the missing character. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> You're in that room. We just can't I'm hear I'm there. You. <laughs> I've, it's, it's not missing
1: after all. I've, I've returned him.
0: <laughs> um, to, going back to this mother, you know, this, the, the story is, I suppose in a way, it's a showdown between the the mother and the absent father for, for possession of this son, but the, the father's not even really competing. Um Wh- who is the mother fighting against?
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, I've, I've you know, I'm I'm drawn back to my memory of my divorced parents in some way and realizing, you know, it's she's over some some lost piece of the past and also the the son who has made a priority decision. She's not wrong about that. He is. Mm-hmm. He's barely there. Yeah. Spending more time with the dad because the dad seems. Easygoing,
0: yeah. And <laughs> for a
1: teenager,
0: she's Whitey, ruining
1: it. Ruining Whitey is it
0: fun, time. you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, Whitey sounds like a hoot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but also, Chris has been dreading seeing her. He's praying on the train that she won't behave this way. He's he's clearly been dealing with this for years. How do you think he sort of emerges from this scene emotionally?
1: Uh, Resigned not to do this again.
0: Yeah. But he you know, will.
1: Yeah, I mean, he 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 comes across also very um, teenagery himself and immature, um, just in the way he talks. But it's clear that he's. It, it seems clear to me, like that it's 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 not going to happen again.
0: You think? Yeah.
1: Well, he'll see her again, but less and less. She's just she's she's poisoning each of these moments.
0: Yeah, I mean, she's she just dishes out that. The mother of all guilt trips, you know, it's like, it's like a, a master class in just making your child feel awful.
1: But she's—I bet she's the kind of mom if he introduces a friend, the lover, you know, <laughs> and that'll be the that. He'll see more of her because the friends will be like, "I love your mom."
0: Yeah, you know? she's so funny. Yeah, she's one of us. But yeah, I don't know what is she actually trying to do? You know, she obviously she's making Chris feel awful and uncomfortable, and she's manipulating him. Does it gain her anything if she gets him to stay a few more minutes? What she's Does she actually want him to stay?
1: Well, it's almost like it's a performance for her friend as well, yeah. you know, which is her, her actual life. And so she has to show some mastery over a moment that's disappointing. And she has to be the queen of that disappointment because she's mostly not with that man, you know, young man in the room.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. She puts his photos out everywhere she goes.
1: Oh, that is true. Yeah. It is hard to have sympathy for her. I was, I was looking and looking for it. You know, I feel for her and I feel like I remember there's a cast of characters in my past where I can place her among them, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and you see their sadness and their, they can overcome it through this sort of theater, um, but it only works in their group of friends, which is why I understand she would have had another person in the room too. Dorothy Parker would have made it a sort of, you know, carnival group.
0: Yeah, the story would be really different if if Madame Mara were not in the room. Yeah,
1: yeah, it would. That would be like a a two person theater piece somehow. But <laughs> Madame Mara is is essential to it.
0: And what what role did she perform really in this? I mean, is she the, just the audience for the mother?
1: Well, for me in the in the story at least, she's so earthy <laughs> <laughs> um and and crass that it sort of blows the illusion of um of grandeur that the that the mother is is, you know, barely presenting.
0: Yeah. But she gives Chris this just sort of dreary fortune, you know, palm reading or, she oh, well, you're going to be sick. You're going to, you know, you, you might have two kids. You might have one who dies and no, I don't see any, you know, big success in your, in your hand. It's sort of, um, is it malicious? Is it really what she's seeing in his palm?
1: Well, she must be just like the mother in some way, just a, sort of a vampire, you know, mm. Of, of disappointment and feeding off what seems like a perfectly average, certainly tall <laughs> <laughs> young man with, with, you know, who hasn't really harmed anybody so far. But it's his success at just being normal, I think, enrages her in some way. Because she too seems like a, a failed human being um, that they have to, they're sort of renaming it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's also, you know, drinking through her veil <laughs> and probably to excess. There's that moment where um, the mother, you know, says, says something about how, how Chris's dinner with his father will be stalled ox, which is a biblical reference to the proverb, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. You know, the, the suggestion being that by choosing his father, Chris is choosing sort of money or luxury over real love.
1: Thank you for that. I didn't know what that was. I thought it was just a 50s dish I hadn't heard of.
0: You know, well, she just has a, a few, you know, scraps of, of herbs and, and the father has this ox. But um, it, it stands out to me because the last thing I expect this character to do is quote the Bible. It makes me wonder why Dorothy Parker threw that reference in there.
1: I mean, to me, it's when you now you've re re rewritten it for me. Now that I know she's <laughs> doing a biblical reference, I I mean, to me, it's it. I just it made me think. I kept thinking she is somewhat erudite. She gets her Italian wrong,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know, and the French is a little formal. <laughs> yeah, for her son, so that she's 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 such a a dabbler at these things. It's also yeah. shocking to me that she lies about what she has to feed him.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's very strange. Telling him, I'm, "I, I ha- all I have is an egg, but I'll have share, egg, it <laughs> share it with you." Share it with you. And then he opens the fridge, and it, it's full of caviar, and Italian sausage, and a Cornish rock hen, and artichokes, and um, you know, shelled peas. It's so specific.
1: I mean, in a way, maybe this is what you were getting at before—that opening the refrigerator makes you think, like, well, she's not suffering so yeah. much, and in fact. Maybe she doesn't love his visits, you know. Mm-hmm. It's all on her strange terms in her strange world. He kind of ruins it, and she'd, she'd rather not have him there.
0: Yeah, he definitely dispels something. You know, there's a, a way in which if he's present, she has to actually look at herself, you know, maybe not in those sparkly mirrors, but in his eyes. And, uh, and it's a bit of a downfall.
1: Oh, the poor woman.
0: <laughs> and yeah, we don't feel all that sorry for her.
1: No, and she, I have to say, having read it aloud, it was different from reading it on the page because once you sort of perform her, she seems so fabulous, <laughs> even though she's not. But those, those, those funny way she has of talking is I'm, I'm, I'm already drawn to her and I'm often drawn to troubled women, Um, but I, I, my sympathy started to come out because I admired that she had a style, Mm -hmm. at least,
0: Mm -hmm. you know. A high drama.
1: Caviar in the refrigerator. You kind of hand it to her, (laughs) but red caviar.
0: Right, and that last (laughs) speech she delivers, you know, hard to imagine it's improvised. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, At the same time, I don't think she practices for this. Um, It's it's interesting. I mean, there's one moment where... You sort of feel for Chris throughout, and then the one moment where he's just so dense when he tells her he's going to give her little poodle box to his stepmother, you know, and you think, God, could you, do you have no sense of what's happening in front of you? It's hard to assess where his mind is, how much he's understanding.
1: Yeah, that's where you feel like Dorothy Parker is kind of being cruel to him for being such a sort of college numbskull, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way. And in my mind, I keep setting this in the 30s, even though its I know it's written in the 50s, but I keep putting him as sort of in a raccoon coat or something and swallowing goldfish, <laughs> kind of foolish youth that, that that can't even, you know, make it through a conversation with mom without yeah. rolling his eyes.
0: Yeah, with good reason. I mean, and, and also, the, you know, the father obviously is completely different. He's managed to move on, find himself a fun, um, easygoing wife. And, a little and I thought it
1: was clever of, of Dorothy Parker not to make her a beauty that she's got a funny monkey face and straw colored hair um, <laughs> instead of her being, you know, just a floozy. Uh, maybe she is a floozy, but like that's a cruel way to describe someone.
0: Yeah, yeah. But she's nice.
1: <laughs> but she's nice. I mean, I think that made me think like, oh, good for the father, you know, he's just someone sweet <laughs> Yeah, funny.
0: You sort of picture him having, you know, come out of this this marriage to an overly dramatic person and just wanting a break.
1: So. And getting a little dog in the mix. I mean, not, <laughs> I would go to that little shack <laughs> with the fireplaces, although he's only there like a day. I don't understand the setup a little bit.
0: <laughs> it's just a little weekend weekend house, Yeah. I guess. Um, I guess at the time that, that Parker wrote this, she was, she was living in the Volney Hotel, in a residence hotel, after her marriage had fallen apart. And she may have been surrounded by, by women like this. In a sense, she's put something of herself into this story. I mean, it just makes me wonder if, if you know, if it's sort of a, a what-if story about herself or a but there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-I story.
1: And it, or like putting the worst version of herself in there. Yeah. The, yeah, because...
0: I think those were tough years for her.
1: Yeah, I'm sure.
0: But I know in the, in the biography it mentions that the year after the story, 1956, she was issued in advance by the New Yorker because she was about to be evicted. I um, mean, part of
1: the reason why I wanted I chose Dorothy Parker was because I think of her as one of the sort of founding voices in the New Yorker.
0: Yes, and she was a founding member of the, the editorial board. The magazine started as a, as a humor magazine, in a sense. It was sort of where she, how she cut her teeth on humor. Well, this story doesn't really feel like satire to me. It feels no, more, it's yeah. more of a portrait. So it's funny and I'm sure, you know, funny especially when read aloud, but it's not uh, it's not a story where we get pleasure out of the of the humor.
1: No. It's dismaying, you know. I do it is it was it was much funnier to read aloud than it was just just to read it, which mm-hmm. Depress me, but I think I often, I think I, I found that about Dorothy Parker's stories, which I think I enjoy now more than I did when I was seventeen, where I didn't want to be brought down in that way. I liked her, her, her high spirited wickedness more,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and her light verse.
0: Right. Do you have a, a favorite funny line?
1: Oh, I knew you would ask me that. <laughs> I haven't thought about it. <laughs> I remember there was one one theater review where she's talking about, she's just simply, descri- I think it's an A.A. Milne play, if you can imagine. Um, and she's just describing some dialogue two characters have. And then she says, and that is when your reviewer shot herself. End <laughs> of review. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. It kind of the defi- <laughs> and they printed it.
0: The definition of gallows humor. Well, thank you so much, Andy.
1: Thank you. What fun.
0: I really appreciate it. Dorothy Parker, who died in 1967, was a writer of fiction, poetry, humor, and criticism, the author of more than a dozen books of poetry, prose, and fiction. She was a founding member of the Algonquin Roundtable and of the New Yorker's editorial board. The New Yorker wishes to thank the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People for authorizing this use of Dorothy Parker's work. Andrew Sean Greer's novels include The Confessions of Max Tivoli, The Story of a Marriage, and *Less*, which won the Northern California Book Award for Fiction, and the Pulitzer Prize. He published his first story in The New Yorker in 2004. You can download more than 140 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.